welcome to the You Can Make It So podcast, episode number 47. Thank you for joining us for this episode. And thank you also for your support of our podcast and the many positive comments that we receive and for sharing and recommending it to others. We go live every Tune In Tuesday, so make sure to follow us. I'm very excited to be welcoming Ron Carucci on this episode. So let's get after it. Let's make it so. Ron has a 30-year track record of helping executives tackle challenges of strategy, organization, and leadership. From startups to Fortune 10s, nonprofits to heads of state, turnarounds to new markets and strategies, overhauling leadership and culture to redesigning for growth. He is the best-selling author of eight books, including two of them, which we will be focusing on today, Rising to Power, and his recently released, To Be Honest, Lead with the Power of Truth, Justice, and Purpose. Ron is also a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review, where Nadaland, the company he is co-owner and managing partner of, work on leadership, and he was named one of 2016 Management Ideas That Matter Most recipients. He is also a regular contributor to Forbes, two-time TED speaker, and uh, we'll link those TED Talks, by the way, on our podcast links. They're exceptional. And Rod is uh, proud to be a member of the Marshall Golds uh, Goldsmith uh, 100 Coaches community. He's been featured in Fortune, CEO Magazine, Inc., Business Insider, MSNBC, Business Week, and Smart Business. And so thank you for joining us on the You Can Make It So podcast, Rod. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so before we get talking about your books and your career path, uh, let's get to know you a little bit. Um, I know that you live in uh, Fairfield, uh, Connecticut. You enjoy lots of hobbies, including uh, cheering for the Seahawks. And I know that Guinness Book of World Records says uh, on Tuesday that the Seahawks have the loudest fans ever. So that's quite something. Uh, but one thing that's really unique and I think tells a little bit about you is that you keep a collection of antique doorknobs, door knockers, and skeleton keys. Tell us why and how this connects with your joys and passions professionally. You can see them there right behind me. Yeah. Um, I started making these as uh, installation art pieces for, for people in my life who I felt were representative of people who opened doors for others, people who helped usher in new chapters for people or help people accompany them through really important transitions. And then at some point, I decided I wanted to make one for myself. Um, not so much uh, as a, a tribute, but as a reminder. So that every day, you know, if you think about the countless numbers of hands over centuries of time and the thresholds those doors have opened and closed, it's a reminder that A, we're all part of a much bigger story than just our own. And uh, also that our job every day is to open up doors for other people. Our job is to make it a way um, for others to move forward in their lives, to make hard transitions, to have access to opportunities they might not otherwise have. I think um, there are almost 8 billion doors on the in the world through which love and hope and joy can enter the world and each of us is one of them uh, you know you've given an answer um that is uh you know so intriguing on so many different levels uh both the the emotional the practical uh so uh, thanks thanks for sharing about that you're in your the third decade of helping leaders of opening doors for leaders um, can you share a story about the funniest mistake that you made when you were first starting uh, 
Oh and my gosh. Uh, there are just so many. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't have to, and I don't have to go back that far either to do it. Um, but early on in my career, so one of the challenges I faced in the beginning of my career, I began my work uh, in inside big companies, practicing org psychology and org behavior work, org development work inside companies. And I, I was naive and a little brash and not very politically savvy at all. Um, so I assumed that my job that I was told was there to help make things better, to help improve performance, uh, which also had to include them being honest about where things weren't working. I assumed that companies actually wanted me to be <laughs> pointing those things out. But of course, you have to point them out in ways that people can absorb them, not just blurt them out. And I wasn't very good at that. And so, you know, what there was uh, one particular uh, project uh, in, inside a big company where I was working, where we collected some very harsh data. Clearly things were not working well in this particular division of the company. And, um, uh, you know, I, I was being, people were defensive, people were angry, uh, clearly a very corrupt leader of the group. People were trying to, to protect and defend him. And I didn't handle it well. I, you know, I sort of, sort of said, I'll, I'll show you and I doubled down rather than listening compassionately. And uh, sadly, I won the battle. I, I proved the point that the data were not, you know, lying, that the problems that the data suggested really did exist and they all knew it, um, but in a way that wasn't very compassionate and that wasn't very kind. It was sort of a, I'll, I'll, I'll dupe the duper. <laughs> but the problem was of course that, you know, I. Uh, I began to have this, you know, amass this wonderful collection of severance packages, uh, which my children loved because they were very, very young and it, they know that that meant more time with dad. And then I, I, I kind of had to figure out in between these jobs, I would sort of do side consulting work and learned that the same behavior that got me in trouble inside companies got me paid a lot of money outside companies. And I began to realize, well, I guess I guess if I'm going to have to live out my passion for organizations, it's going to have to be by not being part of one. Um, and so I, but, but since then I've had to work really hard on diplomacy and, you know, it's funny because now I, I've worked very hard in the, all these decades to sort of, and now people say of me that one of the things I do well is deliver very hard messages with a lot of love and compassion. Somebody, somebody on the internet said of me a couple months ago, Ron is the only person I know that can tell someone to go to hell and they'd ask him for directions. Mm. Actually, I, I saw that. I actually, I saw that one. and I, I, It made me chuckle and I thought I have to have a real good conversation with this guy. This is because uh, that's uh, interesting. It, I don't know. I, I think, I think it was meant to be a compliment. I don't really know. It sounds like there's something good in there somewhere. I don't think I'd ever tell someone to, to do that. <laughs> I think it, you know, the part of the art of, um, of sharing bad news is uh, telling the bad news, but actually the person enjoying receiving the bad news. And, uh, and I have heard that. And actually it comes out in a number of the attributes and, uh, and examples that you give uh, in your books. Um, let, let's uh, kind of look into those books a little bit. And, and in particular, let's start with Rising to Power. Uh, you wrote that in 2014. Uh, it's the journey of exceptional executives. Um, 
in the book, you share something that I found um, as someone who coaches executives, um, something that I, I truly believe, but I didn't know the statistic was this high. You say 50% of all leaders entering executive roles fail within the first 18 months. Now, obviously, this causes uh, for organizations and individuals uh, exorbitant costs, uh, damaged uh, organizational reputation, stalled careers. Why do you think this is happening? And what can organizations do about it besides, of course, getting your book? Well, well, you know, I, that that began as a very personal um, discovery when it happened to a client of ours. Um, we've known that's, I mean, and some some studies would suggest it might be even as high as 60%. We've known for 20 years that that's, a, that's the case. And I, uh, which you know, recruiters love it because it's an annuity for them, but the, the, the carnage is just awful. We um, had finished a large transformation in a company, one of our clients, and we're helping them stand up their new organization design. And one of the gentlemen who had you know, had long distinguished himself in the company, young, potential, highly talented guy, got a bigger, a much bigger job in the new organization design. And nobody was surprised. Everybody assumed, you know, this guy was going to soar. And about nine months after we left, he, I saw his name in my caller ID and I was excited. I thought, oh, he's going to call and tell me about all the great things they've done. And he was calling to tell me he'd been fired and was looking for some help networking. And I was, I lost my breath. I was shocked. I didn't understand how could that have happened. And I barely had time to catch my breath. But maybe an hour or two later, the CEO called me to tell me they had to let him go. And he was not happy. And more than subtly implying that some of the blame was mine for not having better prepared him for the role, which of course, that's the, that's the call no consultant ever wants to get. And so I asked if we might come back. I said, could I just on my own dime and time come back in and just sniff around? I, I have to understand how any of us, but certainly me, could have so wildly misjudged his potential. So we sniffed around. And that investigation led us to the 10-year longitudinal study with you know thousands of leaders uh, on this topic, because what we found, uh, beginning with that investigate, that little sniff around, and then in the data of 10 years, was astounding to me. I went back to that CEO and I said, you know what? I will take responsibility for not warning him of all the landmines he was inevitably going to step in in his journey. You take responsibility for putting him there. It's astounding to me how, how we set new, new executives up to fail. From the, from the moments they begin their journey, we are, are um, putting traps in their way that make it almost impossible for them to succeed. So organizations need to be very aware that the preparation, I mean, the, we, we um, in addition to the studying with 2,700 leaders in the, in the research, we also isolated 100 leaders and then ascent and followed them for a year uh, on their sort of landing pad and just talked to them around what was they experiencing. We, you know, in life at higher altitude, the air is thinner. You have to breathe differently, right? And how are they avoiding altitude sickness in the organization and what were they doing? Um, and predictably, facing those landmines uh, along the way. Um, and it was painful to realize this is so foreseeable, which the good news means that then it's very preventable. But there's a lot of work to be done. If you really, if you're gonna invest in preparing executives for a very different role, you move them, you think that as a director or a senior director, their move to a vice president is just 
a bigger version of what they were doing. And it's so far from the truth. And sometimes organizations even tell them that to sell them on the job. Uh, and of course, these last two years, you know, we're, we're seeing dramatic drops in people's aspiration to assume higher level roles, right? People are, companies are struggling to find people who even want to consider broader leadership roles because of, of what it does to their families and their life and their mental health. And so now organizations are really in the hole because they've done such a poor job investing and preparing people. You cannot invest in a vice president after you give them the vice president job. The time to have prepared them for a senior level, higher altitude, much more visible role was five years ago. Yes. Um, second best time is certainly now, but don't waste a minute and just recognize that you've inserted risk into their success by waiting so long to get them ready. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, um, you know, a, a colleague of mine uses uh, this analogy, which I think is uh, very apropos. He says, uh, not allowing a executive to be prepared for a change in their positional altitude is sort of like putting someone on a plane and not telling them what to do when the oxygen mask drops. Um, All of a sudden the the air has changed and they see something in front of them, but they don't know what to do with it. It's a great analogy. It's so true. Um, And what I love about the, the analogy is that it's also so simple. If you just told them to put it on first before they help anybody else, they could be successful. And so why would, for goodness sake, would you not warn them of all the things that are, there's no surprise. The things that happen to executives in their you know, first couple of years as they adjust to the new, new, new altitude and new landscape aren't like, oh, that's never happened before. It happens every, every hour. So we, when we wrote the book, I, was to, I had pictures of all my clients around the walls when, I wrote, when Eric and I wrote that book. And uh, we were determined to leave no stone unturned. I was going to expose every single possible risk they face at every step on the ascent um, to make sure that there's, there was no way that if they read this book, they would have to fail. The other thing that I think was very powerful about the book was we sort of reversed the question and said, well, if half of them are or more are flaming out, what are the other half doing? If there's a good chunk of them sticking the landing at a higher altitude, how are they doing it? And we were able to isolate the data and reverse engineer. We used a lot of really cool AI technology to um, IBM Watson to actually analyze all this data. And we were able to actually isolate the factors that set those leaders apart. Um, And so we were able to say, okay, and and by the way, here's the answer. Here's what the successful leaders are actually doing when they uh, rise up and even what they're doing to prepare before they, they ascend so that we could absolutely be certain that, that this was a blueprint for executives to navigate the treachery of a larger role. Absolutely. Since we're talking about the, the journey to uh, uh, the journey of ascent, um, you, you identify some transitional moments and some issues that are common in executive failure. Um, I know that's a lot in, in one bite, but can you unpack that a little bit uh, for our listeners today? Well, I can certainly give you a couple of examples that I'm sure your listeners will certainly go, oh, I saw that yesterday. Let's start with the very beginning. Let's start with the selection process. We're interviewing people for these big jobs, and we say things to them like, oh, my gosh, look at these brands you've built. That's what we need here. Or, wow, you turned around that sales force amazingly. That's what we need to have done here. And we're telling them 
that they have a playbook. And we're telling them that they've achieved an outcome we want them to repeat here. What we're doing is giving them permission to then ignore context. So when they enter, they think that their mythical mandate is to slap on their past successes onto the current organization uh, and rinse and repeat because we've given them permission to do that. Of course, what happens is they, they start slapping, the organization unsurprisingly resists and they should slap harder. Then after you know biting on this mythical mandate, then they turn their diagnosis into an indictment. They start realizing, you didn't tell me it was this bad. How have you people made any money? You know, uh, and they start overtly complaining and deriding the people that are there, who were, by the way, in far more pain before you arrived, and now you're making them in more pain. So you're naturally training them to withdraw their support, and then we 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 all watch it happen. And of course, then inevitably, the you know you you're either sidelined or you're exited, and with the classic, they just weren't a good fit. So, you know, those are, those are just two of the common ones. Um, the other one that's very common is um, most leaders are not prepared for the fact that when you get up there, you're on the jumbotron. 24-7, your life is amplified. You have a megaphone strapped to your mouth. Everything you say is intensified. There's no such thing as small talk. And versions of you are being concocted all over the place. And if the limits of your leadership transcend your geography, so people who you lead don't live where you are and, and now you're even more distorted and leaders paralyze at the distortions of them that are created by others the qu quotes of them of things they never said uh the the um concoctions of their motives that don't exist and many leaders just don't know how to handle that and so they they play whack-a-mole that's right rather than learning to become more centered and more authentic and more open uh and and accepting of the fact that they cannot control all that noise and nor should they try. Um, so they just freeze up and they just, they become fearful, they become anxious, they become reticent or they go the other way and become bullies. Um, and so those distortions are very real. Um, they're very unlike, you know, the experience of being in the middle of an organization. Um, the, uh, they can't, and, the, and the, the last one I would, Put out is that the remit is a much longer term remit. So the sense of gratification you get from the work you do in the middle is going to be very different than the, and you have to learn to let go. But many leaders can't forfeit the gratification they get from near-term outputs. And so suck it all up with them, right? And then never let go of that work. And then the people they lead just feel, you know, pointless. It, it takes a, a moment that could be a moment of great opportunity and turns it into a moment of deep resentment. Very yep. And again, all of it's foreseeable. Exactly. You know, in your um, in your most recent book, to be honest, um, lead with the power of truth, justice, and purpose. A book, by the way, which is excellent, and a book that uh, has been added to our twenty two books for twenty twenty two, which is a program that all of our coaching uh, clients are a part of. You um, you in this book explain four factors. Um, clear identity, accountability, governance, and cross-functional relationships, and how these four factors affect honesty, justice, and purpose within a company. I'd like to invite you just to maybe pick two of them and expand by telling us why these are important in decision-making. 
So um, let me just set a little bit of context for why we did this study in the first place. When we eventually learned that we could predict the conditions under which people would lie and cheat and, and the conditions under which they would, you know, um, tell the truth and behave fairly and serve a greater good, uh, the goal then was to publish the research. It wasn't to write a book. It wasn't until much later that I realized, because everybody wanted me to say, well, well, can you explain the Wells Fargo fiasco? Can you explain Theranos through the lens of your four findings? And which of course that's about as you know, meaningful as root canal. And I, we did it a couple of times, but I'm like, I don't want to do this. But, but the more I, people kept pointing to the, the villains to say, look, your four findings explain the villain's behavior, the more I thought, I, surely I could not have come up with four findings that nobody's doing, because then that's not helpful and irrelevant. And so I wanted to know who, who somebody must be embodying these in some way. And turns out they're everywhere. The, that was really the, the, the exciting part of, there's, there are plenty of heroes out there. And so that's when we decided to do the book, that, that, that it's a book of heroes, uh, people we'd be proud to emulate, one as our bosses. Um, so all the stories in the book are examples of we, we, we could we could you know replicate ourselves. Um, I'll start with the last one because it was probably the most surprising. And each of them, each of those findings has a statistical correlation or multiplier of how much it can predict the degree to which people will go one way versus the other. Um, the last one was cross-functional relationships, you know, the we's and they's. Everybody in organizations has a they. What do they want? Or here they come again. Or you see them in the caller caller ID or in your inbox, and you think, ugh. Um, and turns out at the seams of your organization, you know, marketing and sales, supply chain operations, you know, R and D and innovation and HR and everybody. Um, though that's where real competitive value is created. It's those intersections that true performance exists. And if those seams are not stitched well if they're tumultuous, if they're full of conflict, if they're full of rivalry, um, turns out you increase the fact by, uh, by which people will be dishonest by a factor of six. So you're six times more likely to have people be dishonest because when you fragment the organization into silos and territories, you then fragment the truth. And once we have dueling truths, we're no longer looking for a single source of truth. It's now about my truth versus your truth. My only goal now is to be right. Um, but when you stitch those seams very well, when you integrate the, the places where organizations intersect and you make them coalesce into a, a cohesive force, when the tension, the natural tensions that can exist there are can be held well and resolved well, when you turn they's into we's, um, now you're six times more likely to have people be honest because now there's no reason. Now I see that a unified bigger story. Uh, so the other one I'll point to is uh, the accountability one because it's... Um, a painful reality that our accountability systems and organizations, the way we talk about and measure contribution are so woefully inadequate and uh, antiquated. You know, they were, they were built around uh, remits of repeatable work. You know, how many cases did you close? How many files did you process? How many t-shirts did you print? Not around today's remits, which are much more akin to who I am today. My remit is my analysis, my idea, my creativity, my solution my perspective. And so you can't say it's not personal anymore because it's a part of who I am. When you talk about my work, you are talking about me. And we've not prepared leaders to do that with dignity and with justice. And so when I walk in and my, I feel like my work is a cog in your wheel, when I feel demeaned, you, you've never heard anybody say, I'm so excited. Today's my performance review, right? 
the, the, the experience that should be the most dignifying and honoring has become one of the most demeaning and demoralizing um, experiences in the organization. And so we have to make a large pivot to how we hold the stories of people's work in our hands with care and with fairness, right? You, you know, you so often you hear people who believe the system's rigged. You know, I don't believe that I can show up and be as successful as anybody else because of the way I look, because of who I am, because of what job I have. Um, every organization has privileged roles, right? Not all work is created equally. If you're in a growth company, your salespeople are privileged. If you're a brand company, your marketers are privileged. If you're a tech company, your engineers are privileged. And the problem is those privileges, when they disadvantage others from success, they become status symbols. And if you don't level the playing field for people, they're going to show up with the assumption they can't be successful. Why should they try? So, uh, and when your accountability systems are based in dignity and justice, you are four times more likely to have people um, be uh, truthful and uh, tell the truth and behave fairly and serve a greater good. So just those two factors alone create a 10x. You know, if you're good at both of them, you're 10 times more likely to have people be honest you know, tell the truth, behave fairly, serve a greater good. Um, and if you don't, you're 10 times more likely to have, to have them put you in a headline story you never wanted to be in. Hmm. You know, your, your answer to, to that question has uh, affirmed in me the, the, the reason why uh, your book made it to our list. Uh, that's hmm. an excellent answer. And uh, there's so much there to unpack. Let's unpack one quick thing that you said, and that is that it is a book about uh, heroes about uh, stories of success and of victory, and and one of them in particular that you talk about uh, is the chairman, I believe he is, or the president of Best Buy, mm. uh, and he was able to take a company that was on the brink of bankruptcy to one of the most um, profitable, thriving, purposeful uh, companies. Can you share a little bit about his story and the experience mm. that he went through? Hubert Jolie, a dear friend. Uh, and a brilliant man and a, and a good-hearted leader. Um, you know, at the time he inherited Best Buy, you know, they were being humbled by online, real, you know, retailers. Uh, consumer electronics is a notoriously cutthroat, you know, pennies on the margin kind of business. And of course, all the prevailing contemporary wisdom would have said, cut costs, close doors, shrink. He did the opposite. He went around and listened to the store's leaders. He watched employees. He watched customers coming and going without any products. He listened to the pains and concerns that they had been straddled with and, and changed them and listened to their stories. But what he mostly did what he, what is what he calls unleashing human magic, that when humans get to be first human, you know, he, he, told, he wanted everybody on the, on the store floors to say, don't treat them like, like they're, you know, you want their wallet. Treat them like they're your grandmother, you know, and that you're here to help them solve a problem. Um, that they they shaped a purpose uh, that they um, they they articulated as um, uh, enriching people's lives through technology. He said, "Sure, sell them a TV if they want a TV, but make their lives better." Um, and he listened to he they went around to store after store after store and listened to people's stories, both their heartbreaking stories. Um, and their heartwarming stories and said, I, we want everybody's individual sense of purpose to be discovered in, in our purpose. How can we unleash the magic you bring for you to live out your purpose here? And that's the environment they created. Um, they, they and were, people were prepared, people were empowered. 
You know, simple things like price matching. People would come in and say, I can get this cheaper at Amazon. And he said, okay, well, if they can prove it, just match the price. They were never allowed to do that, right? They had, you know, store managers were saying, we have 50 KPIs. We can't possibly, you know, he cut it down to three. And so he, he, he understood and met the people, you know, most responsible for shaping customer experiences and sales where they were and enabled them to be successful. Um, when he left, uh, I think he was in the job just over eight years. The stock price went from about $11 to just over a hundred hours. Um, retention was much, much higher, which in consumer retail was, you know, a huge accomplishment. Employee satisfaction was higher, you know, and the culture was transmitting, right? It was, people were, there were stories of, of um, store managers or even department managers in stores saying to people, what's your dream? And people say, you know, I wanna to go to college and putting it on the break room board and say, I'm gonna help you meet that dream. You know, so he, the, the un, notion of unleashing human magic transcended and transmitted rank right down to the floor. Uh, it was a, it's a marvelous, wonderful story in a very, very difficult environment and which says it can be done. Right. It, you know, you it took a lot. It wasn't, you know, a slam dunk by any means. And he'd be the first to tell you his 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 book ought to also put it on your list called The Heart of Business is a wonderful, wonderful example of the story uh, of what he did and what it means to create businesses that serve a purpose. Um, you know, his big point is that profit should be an outcome, not a goal. Right. Uh, first of all, thanks for the, for the recommendation on that book, Heart of Business. We'll link that as well on, on the podcast notes. And um, just a, a, a personal connection. Uh, I have a, a family member uh, who his, his first job um, was at Best Buy. Mm. And, um, when he started there, um, there was a, a store manager who did not um, amplify uh, mm. the that you're indicating. And um, during the course of... Um, Hubert-Jolie's time, uh, that manager changed how he treated his employees. Wow. My family member um, was, uh, uh, you know, was on the front row of seeing all of that. And the very example that you talk about, about a conversation between a manager and uh, an employee about what's your dream, uh, my family member ended up having that conversation mm -hmm. with our manager. And... Um, he still talks about it as a jaw-dropping experience because of yeah. all of the questions that he thought that manager would ever ask him, that was not one that he thought was going to happen. So it's uh, very, 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 very real. In in chapter nine of the book, you you talk about it, and you, you touched on this previously, days into weeks. Um, and, you know, we live in a time of tremendous change, constant change. Uh, we live in a time of a need for adaptation. We live... Uh, in a time where um, what you refer to as the courageous act of de-othering is mm. so. Can you uh, talk a little bit uh, about that act and uh, and why it is so important, uh, not only for, for all elements of society, but certainly in the corporate environment? You know, we you don't have to look around very far to see that we're in a trust recession. Of, 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 regardless of whatever other kind you are speculating about, certainly trust is in a free fall. We, we are, have thickened our echo chambers to the point of making them deafening, and we're not willing to get outside them. 
we have uh, nefarious social media algorithms feeding us thickening agents to our echo chambers to keep us in them. Uh, and we're not inclined to get outside them. So you see polarization on political, religious, social, uh, economic planes uh, that we've never seen before. I mean, if you go back, you know, 500 years, would you see similar similar divisions? Sure, but but people could live in those differences with, with civil discourse, with still with maintaining friendships and not fracturing families. Today, that's nearly impossible. People dread the Thanksgiving table because of what's going to might come up. Um, everybody has a they. And what I ask readers to do, and I would ask your listeners to do, is who is your they? Um, and then I'd ask you to think, who's they or you? And I would challenge you to go to that person with a sort of a proverbial white flag and say, we've allowed our differences to separate us. And if, and if you're in your organization and it's created tensions between your departments, then you've, had, you've sold tickets to watching that tension and you've spread it around. And ask them, how can I be a better colleague to you? How can I be a better friend to you? What is it about you that you'd want me to know that I don't know? And allow yourself to be a bit curious and more open. Um, I, I've done these interventions both at the team level and the division level countless times. And inevitably people go, oh, I didn't know that. Or, oh, that's why you do that? Oh, no wonder I drive you crazy. Because we, our, our, our objectification um, mechanisms are so trigger happy these days. We concoct people before we understand them. We we have these trigger happy impulses to refute, reject, and convert. And the the notion of understanding compassionately someone else who differs than us, and 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 being okay with that, and not seeing that as well. If I accept it, it means I condone it. it doesn't mean that at all, um, because your behavior that you think you're so self righteously correct about is just as offensive to them. So we're never going to get past these horrific divisions and, and, and divided we fall. So we've all got to take responsibility for who we've othered or who we've categorized as a they and unworthy of our time or our presence or our respect mm -hmm. and really, really rethink why it is uh, we've done that. And, and, and each of us has to take a step toward, so toward the other um, and build a bridge. I, I, I honestly, I'm I'm, uh, I'm I'm lost for words. I, I really am. That is absolute. First of all, trust recession. My goodness, I, I have not heard that, and that is so right on. And second of all, the the challenge that you give us to ask, uh, who is your day and whose day are you? Um, you know, if if our listeners don't take anything else away from our from our podcast today, I invite them to really take away that exercise. And really ponder it, especially as we enter into the festive days, to really just kind of think about that, uh, consider that, because uh, you're absolutely right on with it. Absolutely right on. There's really uh, those that I coach, they uh, they know that that I often say goals gain, but habits hold. Can you tell me one habit that you've incorporated into your daily practice, either personally or professionally, that you find very sustaining? Um, so one, it's a, a simple ritual, but every morning, um, in the area about some office where we have a coffee area, 
I have a whole collection of mugs in there that come from all different parts of the world, different people, different places. And every morning I begin, when I pick a mug, it's sort of in reflection and gratitude for other people, for a, a, a certain experience I've had or a memory of a, of a, a relationship that's important to me. And you know, I begin my morning remembering that there are uh, many other hosts of witnesses in my story that I can be grateful for and remember them and thank and be thankful for them. And I think by beginning my day that way, it's it centers me around, you know, I'm not the center of the universe and nor are my problems or nor are my um, priorities or, or even my victories that I am part of a much bigger story um, and feel very grateful for that. No, um, what would you say is kind of connected to this very much? What would you say would best describe your general approach to, to leadership? Um, maybe especially radical transparency as a leader. Well, I certainly think um, we, we still have many leaders who think that their job is to be the answer ATM rather than the, the comfort in saying, I don't know, and creating a space where people can co-create answers. So I do think that there's a, a curiosity and humility um, and vulnerability become, you know, uh, the, the gateway to compassion, right? You have to be, you, empathy is so critical as a leader. And the last two years of, of a pandemic have certainly, you know, revealed that. And if you couldn't get that part right, if you couldn't make compassion a routine part of your leadership and it was sort of this bolt on, you probably didn't fare very well. So I, I think com, com, compassion and uh, curiosity and empathy and vulnerability are sort of now table. That it used to be these lofty words that we would think about the, only the aubergines of the world, but today it's table stakes. If those aren't central to how you lead other people, you're probably not going to be successful. Right, absolutely. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the, the value and role of family when it comes to success? Um, uh, well, you, hopefully you have one <laughs> and you have uh, meaningful relationships with them. I think successful people often are prone to neglect their families. Um, because they just, it's so easy to take for granted. Um, and so, you know, if if you ha are a person who wants to be a, have influence in the world, or, you know, or have enduring impact, uh, who has lofty aspirations or um, great ambitions, uh, if you have not centered your family on that journey, you're going to screw it up. Yeah. They and and not just in name only, not just by what you say, but clearly when you come home to them uh, or whatever part in the journey they're playing, maybe they're on it with you in some way. Well, they're always on it with you in some way, but uh, maybe more directly than others. If they don't know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are the most important people in your life, if they ever question that, um, even on your worst day, they don't still know who they are to you, um, you need to hit a big pause button and fix that because you are not headed in a good direction. And, and you may think you're the exception to all the cliche stories we've seen of crumbled families, 
behind successful people, you won't be the exception. Um, and so if you have a shred of doubt, go ask them, go ask to, and don't make sure they don't tell you what you want to hear. Push them to tell you, when do you not know that I, you're of your importance to me and make them tell you because you've got to plug those holes. Absolutely. Another uh, great uh, suggestion and exercise and question you know, for our listeners to kind of look at during these festive days to really ponder the importance and priority of family, for sure. Um, so we're running up against the clock a little bit. Um, the next five years, um, what, what do you want to focus on? Uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I just I just had this conversation with, with my coach this week. And I think that there's a, um, I've spent a lot of time talking about ways to be better leaders and have better organizations and, you know, face into big, tough challenges. But there's a part of me that feels a little bit of a pivot in the voice I bring to the world now. Uh, for example, the, my, the next piece I'm working on for HBR is called Learning How to Be Satisfied. That we all have enoughness yardsticks that are very faulty. Our, our relationship to money, our relationship to achievement, our relationship to notoriety, our relationship to acknowledgement has become so distorted. And you're, and I think you're seeing all the rising, rising rates of mental health struggles for a lot of reasons. Our relationship to comparison, to competitiveness. And I want to reset those. I want to help people rethink, you know, what, what does it mean to be satisfied? What does it mean to feel deep contentment and joy? Um, so those are the kinds of things I want to think about now. I, I, I've said what I can say about leadership. I don't, you know, I mean, most of it's been said anyway before. I don't feel any more need to say a whole lot of that, but I do want to think more about not just how people lead, but how people live. You know, I'm currently working on a, on an article and it, uh, as we come to year end and, um, and you may well know this, uh, every year they, they add a word uh, to, to the dictionary. Mm. And the 2022 word uh, that has been added is the word gaslighting. Yeah. Uh, is the explanation. And so the article that I'm working on is uh, a word that I'd like to remove from the dictionary. And uh, yeah. so the word that I want to throw in is the word uh, more. I want to remove the word more. Yeah. Uh, because so often, you know, I've heard people say, well, I want more, I want yeah. to do, I want to achieve more, I want to earn more. And, uh, and that inability to, as you say, to just learn how to be satisfied, how to just say, I have what I need, it isn't robbing us of, of ambition. You know, no, not at all. Sense of that word. But it, uh, and so it's, uh, it's interesting that you're, you know, it's Funny, it, it was born just a, about a month ago, so ago, in, in this stark moment, I was with a client sort of talking about the year in review. Yeah. And he said, he actually said the words, I was almost happy. And what he was looking at was, you know, he had wildly achieved or even exceeded many of the goals, except that there was one goal, which may have been, you know, flawed to begin with. He didn't quite achieve. He didn't fall, you know, he wasn't a failure. He just fell a little bit, fell short. And that was keeping him. He, he literally said, I was almost happy. And it was just this stark awakening for me of, wait, really? Like, 
Like if you had achieved that goal, you think you would have been happy. And the, the, the difference between falling a little bit short of one goal when you wildly achieved all these others is your determinant factor of whether you choose to be happy or not. It was, it was so real. It was visceral for him. And I was like, wow, that is really messed up. That is, that's, and, and you should fire me as your coach. <laughs> if that's really what you're left with. <laughs> Looking forward to your article. You said that'll be in the, 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 the March. Harvard Business Review. Yeah. And then in the, coming the new year. Excellent. Very, very good. Well, Rana, I, I want to thank you so very, very much for being with us. I wish we could go a little bit longer. I so enjoyed this conversation uh, with you. Uh, you know, the book, To Be Honest, Lead with Power, Truth, Justice, and Purpose is one that I so highly recommend. And it's one that I have recommended to so many people. Uh, it's one, actually, several copies of which I bought and actually given out uh, to individuals uh, because I just believe so powerfully in, in, as you say, the success stories that are within it and the learning come from it. And this book will definitely help you make better decisions, definitely help you be a better leader and more focused on really what matters in your personal and professional life. I know it has for me. You can get the book on Amazon. We'll link that in the podcast notes and also link, uh, you can get it also through your website, which we will link and uh, we'll link it also to our website. And you can find out more about Ron and his company Navalin uh, through navalin.com. And again, that'll be on the podcast notes. And by the way, Ron has an excellent online leadership course. Um, there's, there's two segments to it. Exceptional leadership, leading at a higher level and being strategic, thinking and acting with impact. I, I know I've uh, done both of them and I recommend them to you and you can check them out. And also links will be on our podcast notes. So once again, Ron, thank you so very, very much. Uh, for being with us on the You Can Make It So podcast. My pleasure, my friend. Thanks for having me.